0: It's easy to choose Christ when everything's going well, but uh, it's when the trying of our faith comes that it really is important for us to choose Him, <clears throat> and that's what we've been talking about, Genesis 37. So I invite you to turn there, I think we'll finish the chapter today, and continue on with the story of Joseph, and I've, and I've spent considerable time laying a foundation here, because this is critical to understanding the rest of the story. So we greet all those who are watching us on Facebook Live, and um, it's not working. Okay, disregard, strike that from the record. <laughs> um, if somebody knows how to get that working again, that, that'd be great. If not, that's okay too. Uh, we are going to be streaming this on the podcast, for those that can't get it on the internet. <clears throat> what would the church service be without a little technical difficulty, right? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't know how to act, honestly. Genesis 37, and just by way of review, um, Joseph um, and his family are living in the valley of Hebron, and uh, his brother's hatred has been growing because of his coat of many colors and because of the dreams that God has given him, and so they're hateful and they're envious, And their mission is to try to abort God's plan. They're going to try to circumvent, uh, well not circumvent, they're going to try to do away with the dream that God has given Joseph. So last week, we picked up in verse 12, and we find out that the brothers, uh, they had gone to feed the father's flock in Shechem. Now Shechem uh, has a sordid uh, history. Uh, Dinah, their sister, had been uh, abused. Uh, in, in Shechem and her brothers Simeon and Levi they wanted to get retribution for what had happened to Dinah and they took it to the extreme and they basically committed genocide they, uh, they killed all the men in the city of Shechem uh, just these two men And that kind of makes you wonder <laughs> what kind of stuff they're made of that these two guys and not only did they kill all the men of Shechem but they spoiled the city I mean they conquered the whole city and so, um, you know, they, they've already got a couple of murders under their belt. Uh, so, they're, they're no strangers to, uh, to killing people. Jacob's upset about it because he says, you know, you're going to ruin my reputation in the city. You, know, you think? <laughs> uh, and so, God appears to Jacob in 35 of Genesis and tells him to leave and to go to Bethel, which is the house of God. So, uh, he's going to leave. Uh, and dwell in Bethel, but we pick up our story in, uh, in Hebron. And so he sends uh, Joseph on this errand, and uh, <clears throat> Israel says unto Joseph in verse uh, 13, Do not your brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. So uh, we, we talked about this last week, and, and several of you liked my little FAT acronym. So I thought I'd review it this week to help us remember. Um, By the way, why don't we pray before we get started too far into this, okay? Lord, thank you for the opportunity to share your word. Please uh, speak through me today. Father, let me be your vessel. Uh, If there's anybody here uh, who doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would arrest them with conviction, bring them to saving faith. If somebody's discouraged here today, I pray you'd encourage them. If somebody's feeling fearful, God, I pray that you would Give him a peace that passes all understanding. Hide me behind the cross. Give me your grace, Father. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people amen. said amen. Praise the Lord. So I want to ask you, are you fat? <coughs> and that uh, the acronym F-A-T, are you faithful? Are you available and teachable? And if you're one of those three things, if you're all three of those things, then you're a candidate to be used by God. If you're faithful in the little things, God can use you in bigger things. If you're Available, you know, God's not looking for your ability. He's looking for your availability because it's not your strength he wants to use. It's his strength that's made perfect in weakness. And then finally, do you have a teachable spirit or are you a know-it-all? I, I read a story um, this week about three, three men that went on a job <coughs> um, interview and the interviewer all asked him the same questions. Uh, he asked all three of them the same thing. Uh, he said, what are your skills? And the first guy came in, and he starts rattling off all of his uh, accomplishments and skills. And the interviewer said, thank you very much. And then the second guy comes in, and he asked him, he said, what do you do? And he said, well, I, you know, I've got this, these credentials. I've got these certifications. I know how to do this, that, and the other. And the man said, well, that's great. So the third guy comes in, and he says, what do you do? And that guy says, I do whatever I'm asked to do. And guess who got the job? The third man and the teachable man is going to be the one that God can use now Joseph could have questioned his father's instructions I mean after all Shechem's not you know, not, not known for being a good place and his relationship with his brothers is kind of dicey anyway but he goes he says here am I uh, in, the, in the Hebrew and uh, he said go see how it is with the flocks and bring me word again so he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. So Joseph does what he, what he asked him uh, to do. Now let's talk just a moment about Joseph's journeys again. Now he's going to Shechem, which is about a three to four day journey uh, on foot. It's going to take him, uh, it's 50 miles. And that's where he's leaving Hebron. He's going north to Shechem. Now when he gets there, are his brothers in Shechem? No. No. And that's kind of curious anyway, isn't it? Because the father thinks that they're in Shechem. So it makes you wonder if they're up to no good, because they're not where they told their dad they would be anyway. <clears throat> I, I, won't, I won't belabor that point, but um, <laughs> so, so they leave there, they go to Dothan, and there just happens to be a certain man, verse 15, You know, just out of coincidence, right? It's just it's serendipity, no? It's God's providence that's at work. And here's this certain man, he finds him, and he's wandering in the field. And he said, what are you looking for? <clears throat> and he said, T- I'm seeking my brethren, tell me where they, where they feed their flocks. And uh, what do you know, These, uh, this man knows exactly where they are. He said, I've heard uh, where they are, they've gone to Dothan. Now, Dothan is another day's journey north from Shechem. And you might say, well, why, why does any of this matter? And I, I kind of closed with this last week. Well, when you get to Dothan, you find out that there's an east-west trade route that runs from Gilead to the coastal plain. Now, the choir was singing about the balm of Gilead. And we're going to see that these merchants are going to come from Gilead and they're bearing spices and uh, uh, myrrh and so forth. Well, there's also a road called the Via Maris, and that, that means the way of the sea. And it goes, and you can't really see it that well on the map, but it goes from uh, Dothan all the way down to Egypt. And where is God going to be taking uh, Joseph to? Egypt. Because he promised Abraham that they're going to be slaves for 400 years. So all of this is lining up for, for what God wants to do. So, uh, so keep in mind, that men are making their choices, but God's plan is unfolding. All right, verses 18 through 20, we have the conspiracy and the cover-up. I've got several points, and they're all alliterated, just for your uh, listening pleasure. Conspiracy and the cover-up. And so in verse 18, they saw him afar off, they came near, they conspired against him to kill him. And here again, this this is what makes me wonder if it's premeditated. Because it seems like they're ready to jump on it, you know, as soon as they see Joseph. Maybe they were waiting on him. They're, maybe they're just looking with their binoculars or whatever. I, I don't know. I'm not, spec, I'm not trying to speculate or go beyond what's written. But they said, let's kill him. <clears throat> and, uh, and now motive has meant opportunity. And notice in verse 19, they call him the dreamer. They're scoffing at him. This is sarcasm. Well, here, here comes the dreamer. And, and, and that's what they're really after. Now, they hate the coat. They're going to go after it. But what they really want to kill is the dream. And we find that again in verse 20. It says, now let's, let's slay him and cast him into some pit. And we'll say some evil beast has devoured him. And then we'll see what will become of what? The dreams. So you see, they're after the dreams. Now, next we have the council of Reuben. We had the conspiracy and the cover-up. Now we have the counsel of Reuben. Now Reuben heard it, and he delivered them out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. Well, that sounds pretty good. You know, uh, Reuben's acting like a grown-up, and he's the firstborn son. If anybody would have had a right to be jealous of Joseph, it would have been Reuben because he's the firstborn. He said, Let us not kill him. He says, uh, Shed no blood, but let's throw him in a pit in the wilderness and lay no hand upon him. And he said this, the Holy Spirit tells us, because he's trying to rescue Joseph. Now, he's got a plan that he's going to get Joseph out of this pit at some later point and bring him back to his father. And so, uh, is that going to work out? Is Reuben's plan going to work? No. Now, it's interesting, too. At the end of uh, Jacob's life, he says this about Reuben. He says, Reuben is unstable like water. So, uh, I, I think the brothers, they don't really respect Reuben. He's already slept with his father's wife, uh, uh, Rachel's made Bilha, And so he's already uh, shown that he's not a really good, trustworthy guy. And so they're not going to listen to him. They're going to do their own thing, as we'll see uh, in just a moment. Now, in verse 23 and 24, we see the casting into the pit. The casting into the pit. It says, It came to pass when Joseph was come that they they stripped him of his coat. That's the first thing they wanted to get rid of. And you can, you can just probably tell they were just had great delight when they were tearing this coat off of him. His coat of many colors. They took him and they throw him into the pit and they tell us, the Holy Spirit tells us in here that there's no water in the pit. So that tells us most, more than likely this is a cistern. And this is probably a deep pit. He's not able to get out. It would have smooth walls. It's not like climbing rocks and stuff. So he's in there. And there's only, the only way he's going to get out is if somebody helps them to get out of the, uh, the pit. <clears throat> and there's no water in the pit. Okay. Now, we get to verse 25. And this is where we left off last week. Let me stop with the first part. It says, they sat down to eat bread. That's a strange time for a picnic, isn't it? I mean... They've just beat up their brother and thrown him in a pit. You know, I, I guess being so hateful you work up an appetite, but <laughs> they they sit down and it makes you wonder too. Did they say the blessing? You know, it's kind of like us when we go to McDonald's and we get a Big Mac and a quarter pounder and a side of chicken nuggets and an apple pie and a McFlurry. And and a Diet Coke, of course. (laughs) And we say, oh, God, please bless this and sanctify it to the nourishment of my body. And God says, what kind of nourishment are you going to get out of that? All that sodium and sugar. But anyway, I digress. But here's, we learn a little something that we don't know here when we get further along in Genesis. And now I want to talk about the callousness of the brothers. Okay, they've sat down to eat. Let me get a couple of microphones here because James looks like he'd like to participate. He's just got that look in his eye. Make sure they work. Yes, that's a good thought. Check one, two, praise the Lord. Just in case. (laughs) Now, uh, later on, uh, when they meet Joseph again in Egypt, they're going to recount this whole uh, episode. So would you read that, James?
1: Genesis forty-two twenty-one. And they said one to another, We are very guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore, is this distress come upon us?
0: This is, by the way, this is 20 years later. But Reuben still remembers the screams of Joseph. Twenty years later, he can still hear his brother. He's crying for help. He's begging him, no doubt. Please don't do this. He's screaming probably at the top of his lungs. And what are they doing? They're sitting down to eat, to drink, and to be merry. What a callous callous attitude here. Now, this is memorialized, by the way, in the book of Amos. Amos 6 and 6. Would you read that, James?
1: That drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph.
0: So you see, this, this event's memorialized hundreds of years later by the prophet Amos. So that's the callousness of the brothers. <clears throat> now let's look at the rest of Genesis uh, 37, 25. It says, They looked, lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold... Again, here's this seemingly random thing that is totally the providence of God. Behold, a company of Ishmaelites come from Gilead um, with their camels. So my next point, of course, is the, the company of Ishmaelites. We've had the callousness of the brothers, now the company of, or the caravan of the Ishmaelites. And they come from Gilead, and what do they have? Spices, balm, and myrrh. Now, uh, these things are uh, used typically in embalming. And there may be overtones here of the death of Christ. Remember when he was buried, they had the myrrh and the spices. So it may, there may be some overtones here of that. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, the Egyptians were known for their embalming. And so this, this spicery is headed where? It's headed to Egypt. Where is Joseph headed? To Egypt. Where does God want his people to be? <laughs> in Egypt. So everything's working out just like God... Uh, had unfolded excuse me had had um, decreed all right next in verse 26 I want us to look at the calculation of Judah looked at the callousness of the brothers the company of Ishmaelites now the calculation of Judah now Judah said unto his brothers what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood I mean after all we might get some money out of this no sense that's just wasting this opportunity now, they're not going to make a whole lot of money between the nine of them or the ten of them, but uh, he comes up with this idea, and it kind of makes you wonder, too, if Jude is the ringleader here, because he seems to be the spokesperson, spokesperson for the group, and, uh, and he says, let us uh, do this. <clears throat> now, he says, come let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. Now, look at this self-righteous attitude here. For he's our brother in our flesh. I mean, after all, we don't want anything bad to happen to him. We've just thrown him in a pit. We're planning to kill him, but, I mean, we don't want nothing bad to happen to our brother. I mean, we're good guys, right? And, and that's what Judah's saying here. Uh, and <laughs> This reminds and I think what Judah's kind of doing here is kicking the can down the road. He's saying, you know, something bad's going to happen to Joseph but but it, we won't be guilty. You know, it'll be somebody else that gets him. It'll be a wild beast or whatever. But we'll be innocent. And that reminds me of what Pilate did. Uh, would you read that, James, from Matthew? Uh, is that Matthew
1: 27? Matthew twenty-seven twenty-four. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent. Of the blood of this just person, see ye to it.
0: So Pilate was saying, Hey, it's not my fault. I'm washing my hands of it, but God still held Pilate accountable for what he did. He had, he had the power to deliver Jesus, and he didn't. Uh, sanctity of Life Month was in January, and we're still continuing with that. This whole commentary, by the way, is, this whole narrative is a commentary on the sanctity of life, isn't it? It's precious to some and, and not to others. But to God, every life is precious. And we need to speak out for the unborn because they can't speak for themselves. Now, uh, Simeon and Levi, they don't, they're not worried about genocide. They're not too bothered by homicide. But what about fratricide? <laughs> I've got it de- uh, defined up here. James, you want to define fratricide for us?
1: Fratricide. <laughs> fratricide defined one that murders or kills his or her own brother or sister or an individual such as a countryman having a relationship like that of a brother or sister. Now I know some of you that have got siblings, you've contemplated
0: fratricide, right? But <laughs> but that's next level stuff there, isn't it? I mean, we're not talking about killing a stranger, or killing a bad guy. You kill your brother, that's Cain and Abel kind of stuff. I mean, that's that's, you don't do that. And so, apparently, they've got lines that they won't cross. You know, they don't want to, do, they don't want to be guilty of fratricide upon further reflection. So, <clears throat> that was the calculation of Judah. Now, notice the end of verse 27. It says, and his brothers were content. You know, they're probably a pretty disagreeable bunch, but they, they managed to come together for this. You know, and, I, and it's interesting the way evil will cooperate. You, you remember that line, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? I think that was from the movie The Princess Bride, maybe. <laughs> uh, some of you will get the reference, some of you won't. But uh, the cooperation of evil. Now, I want you to know that Herod and Pilate did not like each other. They, they were not buddies. But when it came time to kill Jesus, all of a sudden, they decided they could partner with each other. Would
1: you read that, James, from uh, Luke twenty-three, eleven. Yeah. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught, and mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. It's amazing how the world
0: will unite. That you know, The world disagrees on everything, right? I mean, just turn the news on. Everybody's... But there's one thing the world's in agreement with, and that is that Christians and conservatives just need to get out of the way because we're, we're holding up progress. Yeah. You can talk about any other religion, and they're just fine with it, but you mention that name of Jesus, and all of a sudden, there's a divide, the room you know, is divided, and we know uh, where we stand. I always laugh when I see those bumper stickers that say, Coexist knowing that those who are so seemingly tolerant are absolutely intolerant of Christianity and those who believe in Jesus. So that's the cooperation of the nine. Now, verse 28 says, And they're passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, Well, I thought it said Midianite, and now, or Ishmaelite. Now it says Midianite. And some, some, uh, somebody that doesn't know much about the Bible, they're going to say, Aha, here's a contradiction. It says that they're Midianites, but they're really Ishmaelites or, or vice versa. But what you, what you do, if you do your homework, which every Christian should do, you realize that there are no contradictions in the Bible. And you realize that these terms, Midianite and uh, Ishmaelite, are used interchangeably. Now, in Genesis 16, 11, you don't have to turn there. Hagar and Abraham have a baby, and his name's Ishmael. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's not the chosen one, but he's a descendant of, of Abraham. Now, Abraham has another wife named Keturah. And in Genesis 25, verses 1 and 2, we find out that Keturah and Abraham, they have a son, and his name is Midian. So the Midianites and the Ishmaelites, thank you, <laughs> are both descendants of Abraham, and those terms are used interchangeably. And you can see this here in the book of Judges when Gideon is, um, is they're trying to make Gideon
1: uh, a king. So Judges 8, 22 through 24. Would you read that, James? Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us before thou and thy son, and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said unto them, I will desire a request of you that ye would give me every man the earrings of his prey. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Okay. So Gideon
0: uses the term Ishmaelites and Midianites interchangeably. Even in the same little discourse here. So... There's no contradiction about that. All right, let's go back to Genesis 37. And notice that they sold, in verse 28, they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. Now, Christ was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, so the typology doesn't fit exactly. But, you know, that's not a big deal. Uh, not every detail has to be precise in terms of typology. But, uh, but he sold, this was the price of a slave, a young slave. So he's valued as nothing more than a young slave, as 20 pieces of silver. And, and the Midianites brought uh, Joseph into Egypt. Just to make sure we're clear in verse uh, 28, that the ones who lift Joseph out of the pit are probably his brothers. And then they sell him to, the, uh, to the Midianites. So uh, just so we know what's going on here. Now how disappointing must that have been Joseph getting out of the pit, but now he's he's going into slavery. Now we get to verse uh, twenty nine and thirty, and now we see the contrition of Reuben. The contrition of Reuben. Apparently, he was not there when they did this, so that means they didn't go along with his plan. They didn't view him as a leader. Reuben returned into the pit, and behold, there's that word "behold" again, meaning, hey, this is. This is not an accident. This is significant detail. Behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. Now, this was a symbol of mourning, okay? So, it is uh, conceivable here that Reuben feels uh, sincere sadness about what's going on. But I'm I'm inclined to believe some of that may be self-serving. And the reason is because when you get to verse 30, it says he returns to the brothers... And notice what his concern is. (laughs) He says, the child is not, but what about me? He says, and I, whether shall I go? I think Joseph was going to be Reuben's bargaining chip to get back in good graces with his father. I think he was going to take Joseph back home and say, here I rescued him from those other nine scoundrels that wanted to kill him. But what happened? (laughs) Reuben's plans have gone astray, right? And so it is when we're plotting and scheming, you know, and God just contravenes whatever plans we're coming up with. And so he's upset. That's the contrition of Reuben. Now we come to the coat as a means of deception. And this is interesting. The coat as a means of deception. It says, they took Joseph's coat, verse 31. They killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they, um, they sent the coat of many colors and brought it to their father. Now, this is very interesting. There is a, uh, uh, a principle at work. Galatians 6, 7 says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Let's look at some similarities between what Jacob did back in Genesis 27 And what the brothers do in Genesis 37. In Genesis 27, there's a lie told to the father. Rebekah and Jacob lie to Isaac. In Genesis 27, there is a lie about a favored son. Remember, Isaac favored who? Esau. And who did Jacob pretend to be? Esau. In Genesis 27... Uh, there was a coat used to aid in the deception. Rebecca put Esau's clothing on uh, Jacob, and when Isaac smelled his clothes, it smelled like the field or whatever. He was convinced it was Esau. Finally, a goat or goats were killed to accomplish the uh, the deception. Perhaps the real con artist here is Rebecca. Because she made goat meat taste like deer meat. Remember? If you've ever read a Esau... Isaac was wanting some of Esau's deer meat. He's wanting venison. But Rebecca, she had some kind of special skill that she could make goat meat taste like deer meat. I, you know, maybe you guys can do that too. I don't know. Any of y'all ever try to fool your friends, you know? They think they're sitting down eating hamburger and after you're done, you're like, Oh, did you know you were eating deer meat? Don't do that to people. That's mean. But anyway, Genesis 37... What do we have? We have the brothers lying to the father. They're lying to Jacob. What do we have? Lying about a favored son. Joseph's been eaten by a wild beast or torn. Uh, What else do we have? We've got a coat used for the deception. Finally, what do we have? A goat is killed to accomplish the deception. So, pardon the expression here, but for Jacob, the chickens have come home to roost. Or... You know, there's several things that that Christians need to just drop from their vocabulary. Christians don't need to say lucky. We're not lucky. We're not fortunate. We're blessed. Christians don't need to call the land of Israel Palestine. That's what their enemies named it. Call it Israel. Um, Don't call God the man upstairs. That's a real pet peeve of mine. He's the Lord of glory. But here's one that I see all the time. Christians don't use the word karma. Karma is Buddhism and Hinduism. Don't say karma's going to get you. Now, you don't need to be vindictive anyway, but if you're going to be vindictive, you need to say you're going to reap what you sow. But don't be vindictive, okay? But if you're going to use that nomenclature, talk about the law of sowing and reaping. Don't talk about karma. So for what Jacob is dealing with here is the law of sowing and reaping. He deceived his father, and now his sons are deceiving him. And notice the statute of limitations hasn't run out on that, has it? I mean, over 20, 30 years have transpired longer than that probably all right now let's go back now look at verse 32 it says they brought it to their father and they said this have we found Know now whether it be your son's coat or no now I want to talk about the cruelty of the disclosure the cruelty of the disclosure notice how callous and cold it is they just send the coat to their dad and they don't say, is this Joseph's? They don't call him by name. They're, they're very impersonal. They don't say, is this our brother's coat? But what did they say? Is this your son's coat? Because they had resent, been resentful of this thing all along. So that's the cruelty of the disclosure. Now, verse twenty we're going to find out that Jacob uh, makes a conclusion based on faulty evidence. A conclusion based on faulty evidence or flimsy evidence evidence. Notice what he says. And he knew it and said, it is, it is my son's coat. And notice he immediately jumps to this conclusion. An evil beast has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent or torn in pieces. This is, the, this is where Jacob goes to. He goes to the worst case scenario and he makes a conclusion based on faulty evidence. Now if he had stopped for just a minute to examine the evidence and you know it's hard to think rationally sometimes when you're emotional. Amen. I know, because I'm I'm the same way. But if he had just stopped for a minute and examined the coat, he would realize that if Joseph had been torn in a million pieces, the coat would be in a million pieces. But the coat, presumably, is still intact. But Jacob just rushes right to a faulty premise based on uh, faulty evidence or flimsy evidence. And I want to tell you what, folks. We live in a world of deception, And uh, the universities and colleges and even the public schools now, thank God our schools here in Anson County are still good, got good Christian people in them. But in other parts of the country, and other parts of the world, they're going to tell you that the Bible's filled with contradictions. They're going to try to destroy your your child's faith. So you better know what that, you better have that faith instilled in that child before you send him or her off to school. You had better. Because they're on a mission to try to ruin their faith. But see, if you... If you think logically, you'll understand that the Bible is a reasonable book. Our faith is not a blind leap of faith. I mean, this is not the stuff of fairy tales, uh, you know, tooth fairy and Easter bunny and and all that kind of stuff. This is this is stuff that can be proved. Okay? So we have a reasonable faith. And I love what what uh um, Peter says here in 1 Peter 3.15. Would you read that, James?
1: But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, the
0: word translated uh, answer in the King James is the word apologia, and it means a defense. That's where we get our word apologetics from. And it doesn't mean that we're apologizing for what we believe, but it means we can give a reasonable defense of what we believe. Peter believed that Christians could give a reasonable defense of what they believe. Now, how, how so? Well, I'm going to give you one simple way you can do it. Take maybe five, six, or seven prophecies that concern the, the first coming of Jesus. Forget about the second. Just take five or six that concern the... Uh, the first coming of Jesus, the timing of His birth, Daniel 9, 27, the 70 weeks of Daniel, the place of His birth, Micah, Bethlehem, uh, His living in Nazareth, His, uh, His means of execution, Psalm 22, He would be crucified, um, Isaiah 53. Just take those and examine the probabilities that one man could fulfill, not just one of those prophecies, but all five, six, or seven. And you, what you'll find out is that the, the the, the probability of one man fulfilling these prophecies is insanely uh, inconceivable. Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. The Bible proves itself to be true by prophecy. That's why prophecy is important. It's because it proves the veracity of the Word of God. But there's one other thing that, that really is a rock-solid deal. And this found in 1 Corinthians 15 and the Apostle Paul shares that with us. If you would read that, James. 1 Corinthians 15, 6.
1: After that, he was seen above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under this present, but some are fallen asleep.
0: So Paul's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about all the people that saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And he says, over 500 people, saw Jesus in a resurrected body after the whole world had seen His crucifixion. Now that would hold up in any court of law. You know, we're always told, follow the math, follow the science, follow this, follow that. If you'll follow this right here, it'll lead you to the truth. <laughs> and all of these guys went on to die for their faith. I mean, if they thought it was a myth, there's no, re- there's no way they would have been martyred for a lie. But over 500 people. And so I said all that to say, don't make faulty conclusions based on flimsy evidence. You know, somebody finds a fossil somewhere, and they say, oh, this is behemoth, this is Sasquatch, this is the missing link. It, it, that's garbage. It didn't start with the goo, with the goo you know. The, the idea of life is not from the, the goo to you by means of the zoo, Okay. <laughs> And I didn't come uh, up with that on my own. I borrowed that. But God created man in his own image and formed him in the dust of the ground. And if if evolution were true, supposedly the process is getting better and better, right? So you would think it would be easier and easier for a monkey to turn into a person. But it's not, is it? And to get away from that, and, and to explain that away, of course, they say, well, the process takes billions of years. And how would they know? Nobody's lived billions of years, right? But that's how they get away with it. And do you know what? People just blindly accept that. You know why? Because it's on the History Channel. It's on the Discovery Channel. It's on public TV, whatever, you know. And, and I would say to that, who cares? What do they know? This book has been proven time and time and time and time again. We have a reasonable faith. And I got to keep moving. Now, let's look at the crying of Jacob in verse 34. And Jacob rent his clothes again, another sign of mourning. He put sackcloth upon his loins. And it says he mourned for his son. Notice the last phrase? Many days. We're not told how many, but we are told it was many. It was a long time. And I just wonder I wonder did they have a funeral for him? And did they go through the whole charade? Did the brothers cry? You know, did they pretend that they were sorry? I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to try to go beyond what's written, but you would think probably if Joseph thinks if Jacob thinks he's dead, he probably had some kind of memorial. Okay, so they've gone some, through some kind of a sham of a funeral, and Jacob is crying, and I'm going to say this: it is appropriate when somebody dies to cry. You say, well, if they're a Christian, uh, they went to heaven. Yeah, I know. But death is not natural. The natural thing is somebody that you love, if they go on, that you miss them. I attended two funerals this week. One was of an elderly lady, and one was a girl just a little bit younger than me. And at both funerals, there were sobs and crying. The one lady was in her 90s, and the the chi- children and the grandchildren were crying. The other funeral, the girl was forty seven years old. The children were crying. the ha- The husband was grieving, sobbing, uncontrollably at times. And do you know what? Both are appropriate. Both are appropriate. Don't ever tell somebody that's mourning, well, just get over it. Just be happy. They're they're uh, they're with Jesus now, uh, if they're a Christian. Don't. Don't do that. Allow people to work through their grief. And for everybody, it's different. It's, it's not, grief is not one size fits all. And, and allow people to grieve. And, and, and the Bible tells us this too um, in Ecclesiastes. This is, this is real famous. Songs have been made based off of this. Um, would, would you read that, James, out of
1: Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 4. To everything there is a season and a time every purpose under the heaven a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which was planted a time to kill and a time to heal a time to break down and a time to build up a time to weep a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance thank you
0: now we know there's a time to dance because ren mccormick told us that in the movie footloose remember that so everybody remembers that scripture from the movie Footloose, because <laughs> Ren says there's a time to dance, but uh I don't want to get goofy here. There's a time to weep and there is a time to mourn. And don't deny people that that right. And and it's on God's timetable, it's not on yours. Don't don't try to make it one size fits all. And he mourned for many days, the Bible says. But it went beyond that for Jacob. And here's where the problem sets in. I talked about the crying of Jacob. Now I want to talk about the crepe hanging of Jacob. And some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Just stick with me. It says in verse 35, and all of his sons and all of his daughters. So notice it's not just Dinah. He probably has other girls too. But I'm told that that could also mean daughters-in-law. That term could also mean that. So, you know, take it as you will. But it says they all rose up to comfort him. And notice what it says about his response. He refused. It was an act of the will. He refused to be comforted. And he said, I will go down. Now it's unfortunate here. The King James says into the grave. But the Hebrew word is sheol. Some of your translations will say sheol. Anybody got a translation that says sheol? That's the proper translation there. The grave is just a hole in the ground, okay? But it's actually Sheol. And what Jacob is saying here is, I'm going to go down to my son in Sheol. What I love about this is even though that Jacob is sad, he knows that one day he will be with Joseph again. And every time I do a funeral, I try to make this point that that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and that person was a believer, it's not goodbye forever. It's I'll see you later. I will, I will see you just inside the eastern gate or whatever your metaphor is. But we will be reunited. Jacob knew that he would be reunited with Joseph and Sheol. In the Old Testament, everybody went to Sheol. There were two compartments. One was Abraham's bosom where the righteous were or paradise. The other is where the wicked were. But in the Old Testament, everybody went to Sheol. But after the death of Jesus Christ, everybody goes to paradise, which is in the third heaven. And I don't have time to go through all that, so you either trust me or we can have a conference later and go through all of that. But I I promise you, I'm not lying to you. But Jacob had a theology, at least, of being rejoined in the afterlife with Joseph. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But the sad part of it is, he says, I'm going to go into Sheol, but before I get to Sheol, I'm never going to be happy again. And that's where the problem was. Notice the last part of that verse. It says, thus his father wept for him. Now, he had already mourned for him for many days. But he refused to be comforted. And he says, I'm going to grieve for Joseph until my dying day. And that's where we get to the crape hanging of Jacob. How many of you are familiar with the term crepe hanger, crepe hanging? Anybody? I, I, I was not familiar with it. I was not familiar with it until this. I started researching this. But we're all going to learn what a crepe hanger is today. James, would you read that?
1: In days of yore. That means a long time ago, days of yore. <laughs> <laughs> Undertaker assistants were tasked with hanging crepe black cloths over the windows of homes of the deceased and were called crepe hangers. Similarly, they laid crepe over the casket of the deceased Hanging crepe and laying crepe have become euphemistic items for extreme pessimism. So a
0: crepe hanger is somebody that's always worst-case scenario, gloom, despair, agony, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. Thank you. Hee-haw. Had to get a hee-haw reference in there. By the way, the term crepe hanger is still alive and well in medical terminology. It's, It's usually used by a doctor who lays out the absolute worst case scenario uh, when he gives you your test results. And, and the hope is that it won't be as bad as what he thought and then he looks like a hero. But, but nevertheless, that's what crepe hanging means. And this is, what jo- this is what Jacob has determined. My life is over. I've lost Joseph. And never mind that he's still got 11 sons. And there's no indication that Benjamin is a bad guy, the baby boy. He's still got got Dinah. He's still got these daughters. He's still got the daughter-in-laws. He's still still the chosen man of God. He's God's man on the earth. He is the inheritor of the Abrahamic covenant. My goodness. What what an awesome thing. But for Jacob, all he could focus on is what he had lost. And there's a sermon in that, folks. You are going to lose things in life. There is a time to lose. And what you have to determine in your heart is that what I've lost doesn't compare but with what I still have. I still have. You and I have lots to be thankful for. You and I have a reason to live. I have family members that suffer with depression and I, I repeatedly remind them, I say, you have a lot to live for. You have a lot to live for. My last point in this alliterated Sermon is the carrying out of God's plan. Notice the last verse, verse 36. The Midianites, or the Ishmaelites, whatever you prefer, sold him. Now, the King James says, and as the first word. Some of your translations will say, meanwhile. I like that better. You see, all of this horror is going on in the background, but meanwhile, God's plans are marching forward. See, you and I are going to go through setbacks. We're going to go through disappointments. We're going to go through trials. We've been studying that on Wednesday night. But understand this, that all the meanwhile, God is working things out for your good. He's moving pieces on the chessboard. He's moving situations. He's softening hearts. He's bringing relationships into fruition. He's forging kingdom connections. People that you're going to meet that you've not yet met. But you're going to meet them. Some of you are going to meet people, and that person is going to change your life. You see, Joseph's about to meet somebody that's going to change his life. See, God's going to have people in your life, and I'm not just talking about for the worse but for the better. God's going to bring people in your life that'll change it forever. And be open to the possibilities. They sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar. He says he's an officer of Pharaoh. The Hebrew word for officer is saris. And it's usually translated as a eunuch. And we won't define eunuch here at, like we did Crate hanger, Amen. <laughs> uh, but that was typical in those days for a, a trusted official to be a eunuch. And it may explain the whole episode with Potiphar's wife in the next week. I don't know. But it doesn't have to mean eunuch. It does mean someone that, it, it could also be translated as Chamberlain, a trusted official, a pharaoh, okay? And we learn also That he was the captain of the guard. You know what that expression means in the Hebrew? It means he was the chief of the executioners. That's what it means. So Joseph is sold into Egypt, but not just anywhere in Egypt. Now he's going to the trusted official of Pharaoh. God's got him in Pharaoh's uh, extended circle because that's going to be important in the time to come. Let me close. The title of my sermon today is Perception versus Reality. Perception versus Reality. Now, let's talk about Joseph's perception. This is going to be quick here. Joseph is rejected. He feels pain. He's humiliated. He feels fear. He feels disappointment. In one day, I wrote this down, in one day, he went from being a favored prince to being a common slave. What a difference a day makes! That was his perception. The reality was, God's plans are right on schedule. That's the reality. All right, what about Jacob's perception? I want you to think about this. This grips me every time I think about it. For 20 years, Jacob grieved over a lie. For 20 years, Jacob was depressed and felt like his life was over, all because of a deception of the devil. The perception was he had lost everything. He could only focus on what he thought he had lost. The reality was Joseph is alive and well. Now to the brothers. This, this is the sad one. This is their perception. They thought they had buried Joseph and killed. More importantly, they had buried his dreams. They thought they had aborted God's plans. They thought they would finally be rid of Joseph And I think deep down, they thought they would finally have the approval of Jacob. Joseph's gone. Now Jacob will be pleased with us. Now now he'll see us. He'll see our value. You see what I'm saying here? Now he'll see our value. But that's not what happened. Here's the reality. Instead of aborting the dreams of God, they actually set them in motion. Because God uses the devil to accomplish his purposes. The devil is God's devil. (laughs) I won't dwell on that, but anyway. Um, Now, here's the law of unintended consequences. The law of unintended consequences. Jacob would refuse to be happy, and they would have to live a lie for 20 years. For 20 years, these guys are going to have to try to keep this lie. And their guilt is growing. We'll see that in the weeks to come. Their guilt is, is getting heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. And there's nothing that can relieve it except telling the truth. And they're bound and determined not to tell the truth. And, they, and furthermore, they've got to be around their father who is constantly in this morose, crepe-hanging uh, frame of mind. Every holiday, every feast day, they're like, Dad, can't you be happy? We're here for you. We love you, Dad. And Jacob says, I don't care about any of that. I'm going to go down to my grave, grieving. I'm going to Sheol, grieving for Joseph. We all know this, but I'll, I'll, just for reinforcement. Sin is always less satisfying than what you had hoped it would be. It always delivers far less than is advertised. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go. Sin always keeps you longer than you intended to stay. And sin always costs you more than you wanted to pay. Now, here's the, here's the tragic irony. If Joseph's brothers had really understood his dreams, they would not have hated him, you see. They were only looking at it from a skewed, pers- they were looking at it from a worldly perspective. The Lord gave me this, uh, and I wrote it down to share with you. If they had really understood his dreams, they would know that Joseph's elevation was for their preservation. Joseph's elevation was for their preservation. God was going to send Joseph into Egypt, but it wasn't just so that he could lord over his brothers. It's so that he could keep them alive. He was going to be the one that would sustain them. Joseph is going to learn before honor is humility. That brings me to Christ. Joseph is a type of Christ. Christ was rejected and hated. He was mocked. He was stripped of his robe. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He was handed over by his brothers to the Romans, just like they handed Joseph over to the Midianites. He was humiliated even by the death of the cross, the most humiliating form of execution. And here's perception versus reality here. That Friday afternoon, about 2,000 years ago, at a place called Golgotha, Calvary, it looked like hell had finally won. It looked like the devil had finally destroyed the Messiah, and he was going to maintain his rule over the earth forever. (laughs) See, that's what all this is, is about, the extinction of Israel and him maintaining his rule. And it looked like from all outward indications... That everything was over. The women are crying. The apostles, are, they're, they're, they're locked up because they're scared to death. They're totally dejected. But that's perception. But what's the reality? Would you read that, James? 1 Corinthians 2, 7. And after you read 7, just pause and let me just throw, throw a little something in here.
1: But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory.
0: See, what God's doing is a mystery to us. The, the plans of God and in, in the, uh, the, the eternal decrees of God, they're hidden from our eyes. We see through a glass darkly. We don't understand what God's doing. I don't think Joseph had any idea when he's thrown into that pit that he's thinking, oh yeah, this is what God wanted me to do. You know, This is how I'm going to get to Egypt. I don't think he thought that at all. I don't think the brothers thought, hey, we're going to fulfill the dream by doing this. They're just doing what they want to do. Everybody's making choices and actions, and the perception was that Joseph's dreams were dead. And I think that Satan thought that he had destroyed the Messiah. You see. Remember there was a prophecy in Genesis three fifteen? And God told the serpent two things. Well, he told him a few things, but, but two important things. He says, You're going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. That's Calvary. But what he forgot was there was a second part of that. The second part of that was, you'll bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians 2.8.
1: Which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they (laughs) known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory.
0: (laughs) Hallelujah. The devil didn't know what he was doing. He thought he did. He thought, we'll kill this man. It's over. I can finally get one over on God and and do what I've always wanted to do, rule the world forever. But oops. Christ is laying in that tomb for three days. But on that third day, on that third day, he rose again. And Jesus went to those spirits in prison and he served notice to them, hey, your plans have failed. In the eternal decrees of God, The sovereignty of God. You notice something interesting in Genesis 37. We've talked about Dinah today. We've talked about Simeon and Levi. We've talked about Shechem. We've talked about Jacob. We've talked about Joseph. We've talked about the the unknown man wandering in, uh, uh, in Shechem. You know who we haven't talked about at all in chapter 37? God. God's name appears nowhere in chapter 37. And yet... Behind the scenes, the sovereign God is moving all the chess pieces on the board. Everybody's getting where they need to be, where they're supposed to be. Joseph goes to Dothan because that's where the trade route is. The Midianites just happen to come through because that's where the trade route comes through with their myrrh and their spices and their balm, which is headed for Egypt. And they just happen to converge there in Dothan at the Via Maris the way of the sea. And as they're sitting down for their little picnic lunch, here just happens to come a caravan of Midianite merchantmen that have all the things that they need to carry down to Egypt for a transaction. And oh, by the way, this plan is now hatched and Joseph comes out of the pit as a slave, sold for 20 pieces of silver. And oh, by the way, this caravan is headed down the Via Maris all the way down to Egypt where he's going to end up not in some no-name podunk place in Egypt, but he's going to end up with Potiphar in Pharaoh's inner circle where he will later in, in, interpret some dreams that will eventually make him the prime minister of Egypt. And so we're reminded of this scripture. This is the last slide. Hallelujah.
1: <laughs> Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that all things work together for good for them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. That's true for
0: Joseph. Guess what? That's true for you. Would you stand? Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're, you're on a sinking ship. I mean, you may be trying to fix things in your life, but you're just rearranging the deck furniture on the Titanic. This, this world is going down. It's passing away. The only thing that's going to last is an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ and God has paid your way. He has paid your bill by the sacrificial death of Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He shed His blood for your sins, and He rose again the third day, and you and I, if we will repent of our sins, turn to Him in faith, trust Him with our life, receive Him as Savior, He will give us eternal life, and we too will join Joseph and Jacob And all of the heroes of the Old Testament. But we won't join them in Sheol this time. We'll join them in paradise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now you may be here also today wondering if God's plans for your life have just completely gone kaput. Maybe you've lost your dreams. Maybe you've had one disappointment after another. Life is filled with disappointment. I'm sorry to tell you it is. The story of Joseph will bear that out for us. Life is filled with disappointments. But I want to tell you this. If you love God and you're His child... Even your disappointments, God is somehow, some way working them around for your ultimate good. So maybe you just need to come to this altar and just renew your faith in God and say, Lord, I just trust you. I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. Whatever the case may be, I ask you to invite